Hi, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is 112BK, coming to you from downtown Brooklyn. What makes an artist a successful politician, and what makes a politician a successful artist? We ask a Brooklyn artist who's running for city council in 2021. In the wake of the 2018 Parkland shootings, artist Amy Koshbin asked people all over the United States, what is the opposite of a weapon? Their answers informed her project, The Opposite of a Weapon, which is comprised of drawings, sculptures, and screen prints depicting everything from an ice cream truck to one of those massaging chairs you sit in when you get your toes done. Amy's latest project also merges art and politics. It's called You Never Know. It's been shown at the Whitney and the ICP, and it's a somewhat surreal performance and speech that is part of Amy's very real run for New York City Council in 2021. Amy Koshbin, welcome to 112BK. Thank you for having me. So you're running for office. Yes. Congratulations. That's very exciting. Thank you. Why did you decide to run for city council, and why 2021? Right. So I decided to run for city council back around the time that Trump was elected, honestly. I, it, it sort of lodged in my mind that, you know, here I am, I'm Iranian-American, I'm queer, and I felt like those voices were starting to be more and more silenced given the Muslim ban, things that were happening with tra- transgender and queer rights in the country. And so I was thinking, well, what can we do on the local level to really sweep change from the ground up, as opposed to kind of these overarching xenophobic, homophobic edicts that we were getting from the top down. And so I started this investigation into what would it take to run for city council around that time. And I realized that I wanted to do it in a really earnest way because we didn't need more people for running for office that didn't know what they were doing, like said president. Um, and so, I wanted to kind of take my time with the run, and I looked forward because there was a run happening in 2017 in the fall, and I decided, no, how about 2021? So I'm running in District 38, which is um, Sunset Park, Red Hook, Greenwood Heights, parts of Borough Park, um, Diker Heights, and Windsor Terrace. And Carlos Menchaca is the councilman for that district, and he's doing an incredible job. He's a progressive activist. He's great. He's great. So it's... It was, I didn't want to run against him basically and put money towards, you know, having to fight me off as some kind of project or whatever. So instead, I am trying to start digging into the community, get involved, and see what the process of actually running for office is like. And for me, I feel like that means taking your time understanding what the needs are of the community, getting involved in your community board, starting the LLC, doing the fundraising, and kind of taking the time that it requires to actually understand what this process is. And part of the project is it's an information gathering project to gather this sort of opaque information that is hard to find online or anywhere about how to actually engage in local politics and to digest it and put it out to the community in a way where it's like, let's get excited about getting involved. Can we change the political landscape into something that's meeting us where we're at, that's fun, that's entertaining, that also has, you know, 
room for voices that are underrepresented and and creating spaces of empowerment for those voices. So my latest project with this run is that I want to create a video series on how to run for office for the layman. So thinking about as we're going into the 2020 presidential campaign, I think having this um, sort of short, bite-sized, entertaining web series on the steps it takes to run and get involved at the local level so we feel like we actually have a place where our voices can be heard and we can enter into the political landscape and sweep this kind of progressive change from the ground up no matter what happens at the national level. So this is very much a real run. Yes. But you are using the process uh, to inform your art practice. That's right. Um, You said that you want to demystify the complex structures of government and to empower others to vote, run for office, and get involved in local government, as you mentioned. Yes. I'm curious about what some of the most confusing or surprising things you've discovered so far have been. Well, I think what's been confusing is honestly how to even get involved in your local community on some level. Where is the information about how to join your community board? You know what I mean? Where is the information about, okay, once you start going to these community board meetings, that there's actually a process, a vetting process of getting to know the folks that are sitting on the board and then starting to you know, sit in on their meetings and start to create like a voice for yourself in the community. What are the community organizations that are out there in everyone's local environment? And I think that, um, I think that for me, those confusing things could be cleared up by just literally going out and doing it. And I think that's what this whole process has been about. I think after the election, a lot of people were expressing similar uh, levels of confusion about, I really want to be involved, maybe do something with local government. I have no idea how to do that. Right. So I, I welcome this web series. Yes, um, Another totally. component of this run is, as we mentioned, a speech called You Never Know. Yes. And we actually have a clip from that, so let's play that now. Okay, cool. Hero So tell me a little bit about what we just saw. You are a multidisciplinary artist. You're also a rapper. Why did you choose to put this piece together as a facet of your candidacy? So this piece was really timely. And I feel like leading up to the 2018 midterm elections this past fall, which were amazing in terms of the wins that we saw in the House Mm -hmm. um, for women, folks of color, queer folks, I really wanted to get people excited and involved in the electoral process because I feel like that's a place where we see a lot of disenfranchisement, a lot of gerrymandering. And so I did a performance at the Whitney Museum right before the um, state primaries, the Democratic primaries. I did it again in September before another primary election. 
And so it was really about hyping people to go out to understand what the structures of government were that we were voting for, what state Senate is versus national Senate, um, you know, what the House is, again, at the state level versus at the um, national level, and then really hyping the audience to have this kind of cathartic experience. So the first part of the speech is really about the reasons that I'm running and um, and why we're voting. The second part of the speech is it kind of evolves into this rap performance where I actually you know chant with the audience, no more violence. Um, break our silence, shine our brilliance, we make a difference. And it's really just super basic, but really transformative to actually look other people in the eyes, grab their hands, move with them, sing with them, and kind of break down these invisible barriers we put up around ourselves. And we do it with technology in so many different ways. And that's part of the run too, is to inject the political landscape with different creative strategies to connect communities, literally on a human level. I mean, this sounds to me like a frame that artists bring to the conversation when they decide to run for office. And your candidacy is not the first example of an artist who's decided to run. Tanya Bruguera announced that she was going to run for president of Cuba in 2018. Yes. Uh, it ended up going to Raul Castro's vice president, mm -hmm. <laughs> unsurprisingly. Mm -hmm. And Joseph Beuys also founded a number of political parties in Germany, and he spoke extensively about society as a sculptural structure and about the type of creativity that we needed to bring to the political landscape in order to shape a future that we wanted to be a part of. That's I'm curious right. about why you think and would encourage other artists to get politically involved and to run for office. Right. I mean, I agree. And actually, the two references that you brought up are inspirations for me in my practice as well. I was on a panel with Tanya Bruguera speaking about her um, presidential run. And I think Artists have this unique perspective, and it's. And let me back up by saying, my theory is that everyone has an artistic impulse inside of them. When we're children, we're all encouraged to experiment with coloring, painting, you know, creativity and creative strategies, and to express ourselves. And so, part of what I want to do is to draw that out of every single person that feels comfortable enough to connect with that again, that vulnerable state where you're actually creating and kind of coming from a place of compassion with yourself and potentially that could radiate outwards towards compassion and empathy with others. Um, I briefly want to talk about another piece that you recently did right here at Brick. Oh, it yeah. was a pressing conference. Yes. Tell me about that. Yes. So I actually, in this room... <laughs> Um, Welcome back. <laughs> yes, hello. Um, the artist Macon Reed, who's a friend of mine and an incredible um, artistic practitioner, she created this amazing installation of a press conference. And so I did um, meditation in that um, installation that she created here on Saturday as part of the Brick Open Festival. And that piece sort of speaks to what I'm talking about because in the clip that you saw, I'm sort of hyping the audience and really kind of ramping up the energy as we were leading into the 2018 midterm. But for the sort of aftermath of that, going into you know the second half of this administration, and this particular meditation was about using media as a tool for social change because so many of us are, you know, 
using social media all the time without really thinking about it, but everything that we put into the world has a small effect that could lead into a ripple effect that could either be something that leads into sort of competition, anxiety, or it could lead into something that creates connection. Um, and so really creating a space to change people's perspectives around the tools that we have and how we can use them is um, what that piece was about. Tell me a little bit about Artist Campaign School. Yes. So next Wednesday um, on May 8th, um, I'm flying out to Chicago for this program that's incredible. And it's taking artists from across the country who are running for office and bringing them into a weekend of intensive trainings with campaign managers and strategists to actually think about how to run a real campaign from the perspective of an artist. And so it's a cohort of about 20 artists from across the country, um, including myself, and it's sponsored by incredible organizations like For Freedoms, Creative Capital, the Joyce Foundation, Fractured Atlas, who have like sponsored us all to go out there and That's kind amazing. of meet. Yeah, and I think it's really incredible because it's so niche in a way, but I think it's something that is starting to happen more. I mean, we saw with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's campaign and the way that she used media, social media, um, and even image making in her posters and whatnot, unconventional uses of color, et cetera, that it really reached a younger and more diverse audience. And she's coming out with... Um, uh, Netflix documentary. I think it already is out now. Knock down the house. Yeah. Right, mm -hmm. exactly. Where, you know, again, thinking about strategic uses of media and artistry to kind of get this political message out and get people excited. And so that's what Artist Campaign School is all about, which is really exciting. That's so great. And yeah. I love the idea that we are shifting conventional wisdom about what types of careers lead to politics. But I think that artists should be included in that discussion as well. Agree. And maybe the final question is, what happens if you win? Will you continue your art practice? What's the vision for this? Right. So I envision winning and then serving my community as being part of my practice as an artist in terms of social practice because it's really about taking – the world of local politics and making it something that is inviting, um, enticing, and exciting for folks to engage with. This is a very earnest and real run and a very important thing for me to represent my community. But also, I feel like politics can be a place for creativity and expression. And the more that we can kind of merge those two, I feel like the more inviting and the more change, progressive change could happen um, over time. And again, if I win, it would be incredible. If I don't win, it's like try, try again. Amy Koshman, thank you so much for thank joining you. us today. The New York Times Magazine described Mayor Pete Buttigieg's campaign as a liberal arts variety show, seemingly scientifically designed to appeal to a specific demographic of upper middle class dads. He quotes Joyce. He can order a sandwich in eight languages, including Norwegian, a language that no one has any business speaking. He drinks good scotch. His husband is named Chasden and dabbles in improv comedy. He played a duet with Ben fucking Folds. This is the candidate that Ben, who went to Wesleyan and has two kids, but is a total cool dad, wants to get a craft beer with. The brand is strong. 
which means that the Brooklyn-based design firm Hyperact had its work cut out for it when designing the visual look and feel of this campaign. Here to talk about graphic standards, kerning and letting, and the first ever democratized campaign toolkit is Deroy Peraza, co-founder of Hyperact. Welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so for having me. how did this all come to pass? Did the campaign reach out to you? Yeah, we got a random phone call in the middle of February asking us if we'd be interested in branding Pete Buttigieg's campaign. And we were very interested. It's something that we had been wanting to do since last year. Uh, Specifically work. for Mayor Pete? or uh, just No, like just really help a Democratic candidate get elected and get beyond the current situation that we find ourselves in. Um, and we actually thought all of the opportunities were locked up already and that everybody had released their brand. So it was quite a surprise to get a phone call. And had you done political branding work before? Uh, we had done a little bit of political branding for a candidate who didn't end up running. I see. That must yes. be disappointing. You know, it's disappointing, but it's something that you sort of start the project knowing and having to be prepared for. Right. And, of course, you want your work always to see the light of day, but I mean, we, I were, guess, we were sort of mentally prepared for it. I mean, that's a question I have is at yeah. what point during the campaign does the candidate need to have his or her branding ready? Like in this case, it sounds like the branding was ready and then they decided not to run. But – Mayor Pete had already sort of been I on think it, the scene, right? I My assumption would have been that people would have gotten their brands together prior to running and had made the decision well in advance of January when people started announcing. Uh, and some people did that. Others were sort of testing the water, had preliminary brands, and decided to um, go a little bit deeper a little bit later into the process, which is... I think what happened here. So in February, when Buttigieg's campaign reached out to you, what did you know about him as a candidate? Honestly, very little. Uh, I was aware that he was a candidate because we were doing our research. But other than that he was a young mayor from South Bend, I honestly knew very little about him. So we had to get up to speed and do our research very quickly and read up. And we... Got to know him pretty quickly. <laughs> mm -hmm. What did yeah. what was the internal process for you guys like? Like, did you get together and say, "All right, there are certain types of candidates we absolutely will do this work for, and then there are others that we we wouldn't." Like, were there any ideological lines that you wouldn't cross? Yeah, I mean, we we have a lot of discussions about ideological lines in the studio about all kinds of different projects, not just political ones. Uh, in this case, we felt like the the sort of bigger picture here was to help a Democrat get elected. There are candidates who just don't spark the same kind of flame inspiration in you and and who, you know, you would have a sort of harder time picturing yourself supporting. Mm -hmm. um, and there, there are candidates who just don't have a compelling a story and, and are that makes our job much harder. Um, luckily, in this case, there's a really compelling story there, which we got to really discover from a very fresh perspective when we started this project. And it was all, all very raw as we were working on it. And that, I think, really contributed to the, 
the product. I mean, it's true. Yeah. You got a pretty lucky draw. Uh, you know, even though he was an unknown, his personal brand is very strong, as we talked about. So, talk to me a little bit about um, the design research process that sure. you went through in order to arrive at this uh, graphic branding. So, the first step is we go out and visit our client, and we get to know them, and. We design workshops to really try to extract as much information as possible and to get them to collaborate in the process. We get them to draw. We get them to you know, answer all kinds of tough questions about their background. And we got a very warm welcome. They got a very warm welcome while they were there. And they were toured around all of South Bend and shown all of the places in the, in the town that were really meaningful to Pete, either because of you know, places that were important to him from growing up there or places that are symbols of the progress that he's brought to the city since he's been mayor. And that meant that they got to take a lot of pictures and they got to hear a lot of firsthand stories and anecdotes and uh, really experience them in, in, in person. That, that really comes through in the branding uh, to me. I mean, certainly in, in the color the colorways yeah. that you released. There's like um, a particular type of blue that references a color that was used by Studebaker, which yeah. is based in South Bend. There's also like Strato a hard, blue. There you go. Yeah. There's also a cream color. Tell me a little bit about that one. Clay's cream. Yeah. So all of the sto- all of the the colors are rooted in either something that's very much a part of South Bend's history, or that is very personal to Pete. Is is inspired by Clay's old fashioned hard candy, which is a over 100-year-old candy company in South Bend. It's a mom-and-pop shop. It's been just making awesome candy since the beginning of the last century, and it's still there. And the the cream color is the color of the packaging. I want to come back to the typography, but there's such a cool tool on the branding website where you've done sort of like a photo mood board of South Bend and Mayor Pete and things that are important to him and maybe describe the the tool that you built over that. Sure. So the the tool actually was, when we started the project, we didn't really start by saying, hey, we should make this tool that's going to be publicly available. We started by saying we want to create a brand that has a really rich story and and we want to make that story as sort of available as possible. But it was going to be a digital brand guide for the team to be able to have ready access to, to the material they needed. About two weeks before launch, as the tool was shaping up, we presented the idea to them that maybe we should just make this public so that everybody can can use this. Because really, one of the most important parts of our job as designers here is to create tools that the public can use. This is like, I mean, a presidential campaign is like a giant year and a half long pep rally. And in order to really get people excited, we need to help them. We need to help them with tools to to get excited. And this tool is sort of this photo mood board, and there's a vertical slider, and you can move it back and forth. And it, it on one side is the photos, and then you move the the slider over it, and it reduces it to the main colors. Is that right? So that's just one very specific aspect of the tool. That's mm-hmm. on the color page. Yes. Um, the tool has several different areas. Has a logos page where you can download all of the different uh, variations of the logo that we've created for the campaign in multiple different color combinations. Uh, 
It has a page that has the color story and explains where the color came from, which is rooted in that mood board, which I'll talk about in a second. It has a page uh, on typography to explain why we chose the type of faces that we chose, a page for um, place-based supporter signs so that we can imbue some local pride in the campaign and get people to really support it that way. And the idea is that we're going to continue adding to the toolkit things like uh, coalition group signs. Um, we're about to launch uh, a whole slew of pride um, um, graphics. There's going to be photography that people can use. Um, there's there's going to be a lot more stuff in there, and it's going to probably expand beyond design as well. So it's it's now this sort of exciting, like flexible, real time thing that we can use to communicate with the supporter public. Let's the, talk about the typography because yeah. you have these individual uh, more than fifty because you also include not just states but also overseas territories. Right. You have these individual signs that people can yeah. print out and put in their yard, and each state or territory is hand lettered yeah. um, in a font that's very evocative of the place. Talk to me about the decision to do that, and I mean it's an incredible amount of work that you did. <laughs> the story behind that actually came from. Uh, about three weeks before launching, I was invited to do a talk in Columbus, Ohio, for uh, the Columbus Society of Communication Arts. And w Columbus has an, has, has an amazing, just rich sense of typography. Like everywhere you look, there's beautiful type. Um, the, the CSCA has this great community of designers and they were super warm and receptive and the idea just came up over breakfast one day while I was there like, can we work with letterers within the CSEA to just do every state and and really make them feel unique and different and not like super precious and perfect they're all hand drawn and, the, and if you zoom into them they're all they all have that sort of imperfection of hand drawn lettering it was a way of of really adding more texture to the brand and making it feel less like precious and perfect and like really we didn't want to create a brand that felt like super corporate and limited. Um, one of the signals that we wanted to send with this, besides that local pride is really important, is that this brand is really it's, it can go in a lot of different directions and the intention with this tool isn't to create hard and fast rules that people have to follow because there's a brand guide. It's not really so much a brand guide as it is a starter toolkit. We want people to download these assets, modify them, take them, use them as a starting point if if they want to, um, and and really show us what they do with them. It's, it's meant to be sort of a seed. I think many campaigns and candidates would be very scared by what you just said. The idea Probably. that you can modify this to say whatever you want and that it's still attached to a candidate, I think would turn a lot of candidates off. Mm -hmm. um, so talk to me about the thinking through of that. Like what if people are downloading this toolkit and you know, printing negative or hateful campaign slogans. Yeah, I mean, um, fortunately, we're working with a campaign that's really interested in doing things differently and, and is courageous and is also of a generation that's much more familiar with the way the web works. And the reality is if people want to do hateful, uh, you know, negative things with campaign imagery, you can do that even without the toolkit. Right, they'll do it anyway. Right, they're going to do it anyway. We are focusing on the positive. We feel like by 
putting it out there, we're making people who maybe aren't designers, but who still want to support with pride, um, we're trying to make their lives easier. We're trying to give them tools to do something positive around around this campaign. And you know, some I'm sure some things will happen that we won't like. It's the web. What type of Positives. engagement have you seen so far? Have you seen your signs out in the wild yet? Yeah, there's been a lot of engagement. Um, just in the first week alone, graphic assets were downloaded 45,000 times, if I remember correctly. So a lot of people have their hands on these things now. And um, there has been all kinds of stuff on Twitter and Instagram, people showing how they've used them to make signs for their yard or... They've added mountains to the Colorado sign. People are, are really actually trying to, to add to the tools, tool set that we created. And um, that's been super exciting. People are making murals. Somebody painted their garage door with uh, the South Bend lettering and, and the Pete logo. Um, so that's the kind of stuff that, you know, it's just it's magic. And people just make it their own. You've written about campaign branding. Um, I believe this was for... Fast Company. For Fast Company, yeah. right. And you talked about, in particular, the influx of female mm -hmm. candidates, about how they're sort of yeah. changing um, color schemes. Talk to me a little bit about who else has branding that you really admire. Well, I mean, I think the, the big takeaway, so I wrote that piece in uh, the beginning of February, um, and all the candidates hadn't entered the race yet. But of the ones who had, um, it was clear that the women candidates were taking more risks in terms of, of color palettes. Presidential branding typically is not the most um, adventurous space for branding. Uh, so just not choosing red, white, and blue is sort of a big deal in right. presidential politics. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought that was, that was noteworthy and, and indicative of the fact that we're in an election cycle that's pretty different from any previous election cycle, and um, there it's the most diverse field out there. It's the field with the most women, um, and identity is playing like personal, individual identity is playing a much larger role in the brands that that have been released so far. Especially in a crowded field where people are trying to differentiate themselves. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Weirdly, though the most of the male candidates had stuck to red, white, and blue. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I appreciate the, the the courage that it took for Kamala to go with yellow and purple and the sort of like not really red, red, and, you know, even Elizabeth Warren with the sort of dark purple, blue, and that mint green color that nobody would have ever associated with American politics mint. ever before. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think they're... I think they're appropriate for them. Final question. This is a, a little bit uh, larger scale. Um, when you think about the 1920s, you think about uh, deco design. There are certain decades, right, that have a very strong graphic look and feel. I'm mm -hmm. also thinking about the 60s, those sort of like groovy, hippie mm -hmm. fonts and whatnot. How would you describe our current design moment? I think that's hard because, you know, in the 1920s and the 60s, there was no internet and there was no just the, the speed at which trends evolved was much slower. I, I, I think it's hard in the moment to say like the trend that's happening right now is this. Well, this design toolkit is so cool. And regardless of what candidate people are backing, I encourage them to go check it out and play around with it. Give us the website. 
The, the website is design.peepforamerica.com. Cool. Zero, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And that's the show for today. If you liked what you heard, the best way is to get off my lawn or review 112BK on iTunes. And please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. Woman to BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogaseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham. 